The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Today will be a, a practical day after we set a framework um, that will allow you to begin to uh, think about more learnedly how to wrestle through what am I to do with Old Testament laws. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have once again filled this room with hungry folks. Thank you for the opportunity. I ask for personal strength for me to just keep going. Thank you for the love I've sensed from so many in this room. Thank you that you are our upholder and our help. I pray that you would grant endurance. This is a long haul for these folks. And we want to receive all that you have for us. So guard us from distractions. Give us solid thinking that honors you. Help us work well together and process biblically how we're to relate to Old Testament law. It's part of our Bible. And we want to understand rightly what we're to do with it. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. If you've got your Bible, why don't you open up to Romans 15 with me. Romans 15. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now there we have a citation from Psalm 69. It's one of the imprecatory psalms where the psalmist is crying out to God and pleading with him to bring down the enemies, to work justice. And Jesus, that, that psalm, Psalm 69, is identified with the ministry of Jesus over and over and over again in the New Testament. And what I want us to do is see how Paul, in the very next verse, talks. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
So here, in particular, he is building off of an Old Testament quotation. When he says what was written in the former days, he's talking about what was written in the Old Testament. And he says whatever was written, anything that's back there, was written for our instruction. All of a sudden, the Old Testament becomes Christian scripture. And the question is, how do details like the laws relate to us? If that's part of Christian scripture that was written for our instruction. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, we'll begin in verse 14. One of the phrases that I've used this week is Jesus' Bible. Now, if, if, you, if that's a foreign term, to, foreign phrase to you, which it very well may be, all I'm talking about is the Old Testament. Jesus didn't ever read Matthew's Gospel. Jesus never read Paul's letter to the Romans. Jesus never read Revelation. For Jesus... His only Bible, from which he drew and from which he taught, was the Old Testament. When he says the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, he's referring to his Old Testament. That was never, we we don't just call it the Hebrew Bible, the Jews do. They have their Hebrew Bible. For us, it's the Old Testament, meaning that it is one old in relation to the new, And it's a testament, meaning that it's covenantal in nature. And the early church, when they were wrestling with categories, were the ones that tagged the Old Testamentum, meaning covenant, Old Covenant, that's the first three-fourths, and New Covenant, that's the last quarter of our scripture. But when I say Jesus' Bible, what I'm simply referring to is the fact that he and all the rest of the apostles, all the preaching that they were doing, all the kingdom talk, all the proclamation of Jesus' suffering and resurrection and the mission that would be sparked from the Messiah's work, all of that they were drawing from the Old Testament. That's Jesus' Bible. Now let's consider that in relation to a very familiar passage. Here's Paul in 2 Timothy. He says in verse 14, As for you, Tim, continue in what you have learned and if firmly believe. So I'm in 2 Timothy 3, 14. You continue in what you've learned. So he's drawn from something. He's been growing up learning truth. Continue in it, having all that you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now notice what it says. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We'll stop there for a second. So Timothy, from his youth, since he was a wee little boy, has been being taught sacred writings. Now the question is, what was he being taught? Well, if, it, if we're talking about from his childhood, if you just turn over one page and look at 2 Timothy 
This is what we learn. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So he had a mother and a grandmother who loved Jesus. And from his childhood, he was being instructed in sacred writings that they were passing on to him. The faith that they had has been passed on to him. Now in Acts 16.1, what we're told is that his mother was a Jew. Whereas his father was a Gentile. Acts 16.1. So if this Jewish mother and Jewish grandmother are raising up their boy on the sacred writings, what scriptures were they using? The Old Testament. And Paul says here in verse, in chapter 3, 15, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. You know that Bible that I've been teaching from all of our relationship together. That sacred writings, that sacred group of texts, it says, is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You mean I could preach from the Old Testament and actually get saved? Yes. Now look at verse 16. Here's the very familiar verse, but we've got to read it in context. From childhood, you've been acquainted, little Jewish boy, with the sacred writings. Your grandma and your mom have raised you up, instilling within you a God-oriented, Christ-entranced vision for life. And then he says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Have you ever considered that you could use the Old Testament to correct someone as a new covenant believer? Paul has a big Bible, not a small one. Second Timothy is written at the end of his life, so already he's written all of his letters. And as Peter says, Paul's writings are scripture. The Bible has been increasing, but it hasn't been getting smaller. So all of the Old Testament is still part of our Bible that is able to make us wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus by faith. And then strikingly, just look a few verses later, after he says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, competent, equipped for every good work. Then he says, just keep reading, take out the paragraph break, take out the chapter division, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. What word is he talking about? The very sacred writings that are able to make you wise into salvation. The very word that that he was raised in. The very scriptures that were breathed out by God and are able to teach and reprove and correct and train. Christian preachers are supposed to be teaching from the Old Testament. I think that's what Paul's saying. Preach the word. And within the context, he's talking about the Old Testament. Now, we know that Jesus has transformed everything. So the question is, how do we appropriate 
all of that earlier writing that was written for our instruction, says Paul in Romans 15, how do we appropriate that faithfully? Knowing that Jesus has changed everything. But we can't separate ourselves from it. That's our Bible. So that's the framework in which we enter in. Now, so, as most of you know, we're jumping to the Christian Old Testament law. We jumped over the temple section because Roshi talked too long this week. So we're, we're in the Christian and the Old Testament law, and what we're going to look at first is trying to understand how the law, that is the Mosaic law, part of the Old Covenant, relates to us as New Covenant believers who are not under the law, but under grace. So, let's just walk through this. Number one, first point, and this is fundamental. We as believers have to recognize that we are not under the Old Covenant, we are under the New Covenant. We are part of the New Covenant. That means what Moses taught was not directly related to us. Even the Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. How many of you were part of that group? In slavery in Egypt. The ten words were given to that audience. And yet, Paul says they were written for our instruction. So, here we go. Christians are under the new covenant, not the old. First, we're under grace, not law. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is envisioning the history of salvation. And when he looks back to that age where the law of Moses was in control, what he sees is death, not life. From the days of Moses all the way up to the Babylonian destruction and even beyond, up until Christ came, the law brought bondage. It resulted in curse. Remember the quotation from Daniel chapter 9. We are simply experiencing the curse and the oath that Moses, in the law, said would come to pass if we turned away from the Lord. The age of Moses was all-controlling. And Malachi, the very last of the prophets, right at the very end of chapter 4 in Malachi, he tells us, okay, Moses has not been superseded yet. Continue to heed the law of Moses. But look ahead for the day when the new Elijah will rise. Elijah in the Old Testament was the prophet, chief prophet of all in the history books, whose life pointed most back to Moses. He pointed to Moses. You remember in Deuteronomy how Moses anticipated that a prophet like him would rise up, and God said, you need to listen to him. That prophet that would be like Moses. But at the end of Deuteronomy, we're told no prophet has arisen like Moses. And by the end of Malachi, he's still saying, listen to Moses. But to have a prophet that is like Moses, at the level of Moses, doing works, wonders, and having an intimate relationship with God, standing as a mediator of a covenant, that's what Moses was like. 
So what we're looking for is a prophet who would replace, supersede Moses. And Moses is longing for that day. But even as of Malachi, it's clear, keep listening to Moses. Keep listening to Moses. That prophet has not come. But all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and Jesus says, he is the Elijah that you were expecting. And Elijah was a pointer to the prophet, pointer to Moses, the new Moses, Jesus. We are not under law, we are under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you because we've changed eras. We've moved from an age of death to an age of life because Jesus has shown up and everything's different. 1 Corinthians 9.20, to the Jews, Paul says, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law. That is the Jews who had not had their eyes open to Jesus yet. They were still living as if Jesus hadn't come. They were still bound under the old covenant. And if you're under the old covenant, you're in a state of death. That's what the old covenant brought. It called for good things. Love the Lord with all your heart. But God didn't change the heart. He didn't alter their desires, and so they continued on in their rebellion, and generation after generation after generation died, separated from God. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul was living in a new era. The future had intruded into his life when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. It initiated life for him. And yet he was ministering to people who were still living in death. Under law, under grace. The death-dealing old covenant is superseded by the new covenant. Remember, my point is we are not under the old covenant. We are part of the new covenant. That's the very first base principle for understanding how we're to relate to that old covenant material. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. The death-dealing old covenant is superseded by the new. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> before faith came, <coughs> before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Faith is here being personified as being portrayed as a a period in history. We're in an age of faith. Before Jesus, it was not the age of faith. It's not denying that Abraham didn't have faith, but it's saying that that entire period prior to Christ's coming was characterized as a whole by faithlessness. Remember the texts that we read that said, how long will you not believe? How long will you not believe? Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. That is, the the Mosaic law was our guardian, like a babysitter until we came of age. It was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul here is very clear. There are two periods in history. The period prior to Christ, the period after the Christ. And now that he has come and we have entered into the age of faith, we are no longer under the guardian. 
We are not under the old covenant anymore. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law was pointing somewhere. It was destroying people in order to show them their need for Jesus. To move them in their hopelessness and their helplessness beyond themselves to cry out and say, God, I cannot be the person you've called me to be. You're going to have to bestow on me by mercy what I cannot make happen on my own. Christ is the end. It's kind of like a race. This word telos here, I I picture it as both like the finish line is the end of the race, but it's also the goal of the race. Like you want to reach that point. You want to cross that line. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Righteousness comes through him. It comes by believing, not by doing. He did. We receive what he did by faith. It is counted to us, imputed to us, when we brought nothing to the table. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Now hear what I said. I said that the Old Testament includes mention of the Old Covenant, but it also includes lots of mention of the New Covenant. The Old Testament is not equated with the Old Covenant itself. The Old Testament becomes Christian scripture. It becomes part of the Bible for New Covenant believers. But it talks about the Old Covenant, a period in time that brought death. The Old Covenant has been rendered obsolete, we're told. It was a shadow that has been replaced by substance. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Christ's perfect obedience provides freedom from the law's condemning power and supplies the righteousness that the law requires. Remember how I said in Genesis 12, the second command in Genesis 12 that we don't see in the ESV or most translations, it doesn't just say, go to the land, Abraham. It says, be a blessing. Be a blessing so that something can happen. All the families of the earth be blessed. Jesus is the one who is and does what Adam was supposed to be and do. He is the perfect embodiment of the living God. He images God, Jesus does. He fulfills where Israel failed. He is the perfect law keeper. His righteousness was impeccable. He honored God with everything he did. And it's that righteousness that gets counted toward ours, while our sins get counted toward him. His perfect obedience 
provides freedom from the law's condemning power for us. The law had us in its grip. We deserved justly God's wrath. But Jesus comes not simply as the substitute, but as the perfect substitute. Why is it that the the goats and the bulls had to be unblemished in order to operate as sacrifices? Well, it was in order to identify that they themselves are not being killed because of defect. They are standing on behalf of the one who's filled with defect. So when that cow comes up and the people would put their hands on its ears or on its horns and declare, you have become me. There's full substitution, full identity. The unblemished ox now takes on the weight of all my guilt and he is killed in my stead. Jesus perfectly honored God. He was completely unblemished. And the unblemishedness of that ox or that goat becomes mine. And all of my guilt becomes his. The great exchange. And that's what happens in the person of Christ. His perfect obedience provides us freedom because all of the wrath that was directed toward us gets put on him. And all of his righteousness gets given to us. All that the law required in order to enjoy life, all that the law required in order to experience blessing, has been secured for us through Jesus' perfect righteousness. We're not trying to earn God's favor. It's impossible. Christ has secured that favor for us. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Notice what he does to all of our guilt. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All that we couldn't accomplish, Jesus has done. All of our guilt put on him, all of his righteousness coming to us. Christ fulfills the entire Mosaic law. And now, now we begin to consider the reality that though we are part of the new covenant, the old covenant material is still for our instruction. The question is, how? Christ fulfills the entire Mosaic law and we appropriate it only through his fulfillment. Here's what I say. Christ fulfills all the Mosaic law in a way that none of it has become void. None of it. I think you should be able to do your devotions from any part of Scripture and find edification from it. Any part. None of it has become void. All of it is Christian Scripture. That doesn't mean things haven't been transformed through Christ. 
we appropriate this only in light of his fulfillment. We don't, act, we don't read our Old Testaments as if Jesus hasn't come. We read them in light of the fact that he has come. So let's see what we have here. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Some of you may have grown up in churches where that was actually the dominant perspective. At least practically, Jesus came to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He seems to have a predictive or prophetic role that he's seeing in the law. You see that? That the law has to be accomplished. I'm fulfilling something that it anticipated. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now what does that mean, Jesus? Because I know things have changed. And yet he's claiming there is a lasting relevance to all the law. All of this being true, while what's also true is that we're not under this law, we're under grace. That the age of law has been superseded by the age of faith. All the Mosaic law still matters for Christians, but only in light of Christ's fulfillment. Let's listen to Moses first. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Anybody remember that verse? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Remember that verse? That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 7 says, And in that day, when hearts are transformed, all the curses that are written in this book I will pour out on all your enemies. Then 30, verse 8 says, You shall return and obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. Moses knows that his audience is not commandment keepers. But on the other side of when God changes hearts, he thinks they will be commandment keepers. But not only commandment keepers, he says all the commandments that I've written you in the book of Deuteronomy, you will keep. Everything I've commanded you today, you will do at that time. And I have to say, how's that work? But I can't run from Moses. He is as true as Paul is true. Both of them are speaking without error. And in the day of heart circumcision, we're going to be a people who take Deuteronomy seriously. That's what Moses is anticipating. So I want to be that kind of a person. And yet who does it faithfully in light of the fact that Jesus has come and not try to be bound by a law that destroyed Israel. Hopefully your wheels are turning. Like, how can all this be? Now let's look back at Matthew 5. 
We just looked at this verse, but I want to look at it fully now in context. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, now look at this. This is, this is very significant, I think. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, which commandments? I think he's talking about those that are in the law. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't want that. And then he says, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus appears to have a view that says there is lasting value, in fact, lasting necessity of the old covenant laws. We can't, as Christians, as Christ followers, push them aside lest we be least in the kingdom of heaven. But notice, he doesn't just say, keep the law. He says, I haven't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So we only reach back to that law through the fulfillment that Jesus brings. But all the law matters. And if we minimize any of it, we could be called least in the kingdom. We are to not only teach it, but to do it. So think about Paul in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He has a framework that says, yes, Jesus is correct. That the Old Testament can be used for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. But notice what he said in the previous verse. You were raised up on the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for a salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You read the Old Testament as a pointer to Jesus. You only read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. If you try to do your devotions in the Old Testament, considering how am I supposed to be keeping this law, and not consider what Jesus has done to transform it, you'll be misappropriating the law. All the law matters, I think he's saying, but only in light of his fulfillment. And that's where I want to major. I'm not going to... I personally don't favor a view that says, well, there's a moral law and a civil law and a ceremonial law. How many of you have ever heard that tripartite division? I understand where they're going, but I don't go there because, for example, the Ten Commandments are the most moral law of all. People affirm that's moral law, but they're, all the Ten Commandments over and over again are filled with Images of Iron Age culture. They're filled with images of where cattle are experienced, where you know, people have farms, where there are indentured servants, where Israel came out of Egypt. That is, it's moral law, but it's actually bound culturally. Not only that, all of the 
Civil laws, civil simply means everything that was related to Israel living in the land under a king. All those laws have a moral element to them. They're merely expressions in space and time of what it meant to love neighbor or love God. And then all the ceremonial laws, all the pageantry associated with the temple and the sacrifices, even those laws were moral in their core. They were about love of God and love of neighbor. When I'm reading this text, it doesn't seem Jesus is saying, whoever relaxes one of the least of the moral commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's just talking about the whole gamut. All of the laws back there still matter, but only in light of the fulfillment that I bring. All of them. So I simply mean, generally, it seems as though he wants us to be able to do our devotions as Christians from any part of Scripture and find edification, guidance, clarity, instruction. All of it was written for us. And even as a Christian preacher, I should be able to do work, but I can't just preach the Old Testament as if Jesus hasn't come. I have to preach. If I'm in the laws, I have to preach through the laws in light of his fulfillment and always ask questions. Well, what did his fulfillment bring about? With Bacon, we know that his fulfillment brought about a transformation of that law in a very significant way. So the Bacon law, I don't just push it aside and say, well, that, that doesn't apply to me anymore. No, it does. I'm supposed to learn from that law. But I only appropriate it in light of his fulfillment. Asking, how did he tra- transform it? What did he see as the essence of that law? Let's consider this further. From childhood, Tim, you were acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise. All scripture is God-breathed. We already looked at that text. Because Christ fulfills different laws in different ways, we have to consider each law on its own. And that's what makes at least the model that I've been I'm not the only one following what I'm teaching you. People like D.A. Carson, Doug Moo, Tom Schreiner, they're all appropriating the law in the same way that I'm presenting it. It's not an easy task for us as Christians to use our Old Testaments. It's a lot of work. Because it was written to a different people, but it was written for us. So we have to take every, every individual law and wrestle hard with how does the fulfillment that Jesus has brought in space and time, his fulfillment of the law, transform this law? And what I want to propose is that every law, not just some laws, but every law has been transformed, including adultery and homosexuality. That we don't simply not commit adultery because it says so in the Ten Commandments. No. That was Old Covenant law. But we do appropriate that law in light of what Jesus has done, and we ask, what does Jesus bring? This looks like a circle, but it's actually a lens. It's a special kind of lens called a... I think it's called a Lundberg lens. The lens is made so that as light comes through on one side of the lens, 
it gets refracted and bent so that all of that light, while the light is still within the lens, comes to a focus on the far side of the lens. Most lenses, the light comes through the lens in the center, it goes directly through on the sides, it gets bent, and then it meets somewhere at a point outside the lens. But this particular kind of a lens, the way that it's shaped, it it pulls all the light to a focus, and then everything gets dispersed. Now, what I've tried to do here um, is identify what I see happening. And, And it's not a perfect drawing yet, because the top lines are actually bright, and I don't want them bright. I want them dim, just like you see them inside the lens. And my point is that there are some laws that come through Jesus that, that these are the laws that, that we keep that are, at least practically as we're living them out, like don't commit adultery and don't steal. They look most like what they would have looked like if people in Moses' day were keeping them. They look most similar. They weren't keeping adultery. They weren't committing adultery. We're not committing adultery. They look most similar. Other laws, like the food laws, clean and unclean, they come into the lens of Christ, and these laws actually, his fulfillment actually bends these laws, so that they don't reach us like a straight line. They actually reach us from a different angle. His fulfillment actually changes them, reorients these laws. But there's no special system for determining where any given law falls when it comes to Christ. We, you and I, just have to do the tough wrestling, law after law, of figuring it out. Does it look the same on the other side of Christ? Somewhat the same? Or does it look transformed? I say somewhat the same because I think every law comes to us in a different way. And here's why. Because of Jesus. He is the perfect pattern of law-keeping. And Moses and Abraham and Ruth, they never had that pattern. We can look at the life of Christ, like the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Jesus becomes a pattern for us, for our living. And he is a perfect pattern that none of the Old Testament saints had. They didn't have a pattern to follow like we have a pattern to follow. They simply had laws. We have the law and a pattern. But not only that, we have fresh power that they never had. We have the power of the resurrected Son of God working on our behalf. And that power comes to us both through pardon and through promises. The power of Jesus for helping us, when I say it comes through pardon, this is what I'm referring to, that we pursue holiness already confident that God is for us 100%. We're not trying to earn his favor. We're resting in the fact that he is for us and all that authority, all that that power is here to help us conquer the bitterness, conquer the fear, conquer the lust. Conquer the anxieties. 
That's power. If we can just remember that God is for us. Or think about this. If you just meditate on the pardon, what does the cross do? The cross can destroy pride because we realize that all of us are level at the foot of the cross. All of us are sinners in desperate need. None of us are higher than another. All of us were absolutely needy. And if you're struggling with pride, just, just meditate on the pardon that Christ has won. It'll destroy our pride. It nurtures our holiness. It's power for our pursuit of holiness. And it's a type of power that Moses and David didn't have. If you're struggling with despondency to meditate on the pardon that Christ secured at the cross, what can it do? Oh, I I feel so discouraged. I feel hopeless and empty. And yet then I remember, but Jesus died for me. Jesus died that I can have hope. He cares for me. Though he controls all, he cares for this small person. And all of a sudden, meditating on the pardon gives us power to move on to a new day. Because God is for us 100%. But not only do we find power in the pardon, that pardon purchased promises that motivate us. He has given to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. 2 Peter 1.4 He's given us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. We battle evil desire by greater, more intense desires. That's what God's promises do. They're designed to stir affection in our soul, stir new hungers in our soul. We we battle evil desire with higher, more beautiful, more precious desires. What does Jesus say? You're struggling with lust. The pure in heart will see God. So as you're walking through that aisle at Target, and there's these magazines here, Do you look or don't you look, men? How do you battle it? The pure in heart will see God. How much do you want to see God today? How much do you want to to experience glory today? And allow that, that new desire to spark into your soul a longing that makes you turn and say, No, I will not go after that lower level desire because I want to see God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. There's a motivation that's happening with the promise. The promise is being used to draw us in. To seek first his name, his righteousness, knowing that those who do will have all things added unto them. Don't be anxious But in everything, pray with petition and thanksgiving. Make your request known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what Paul's doing? He's motivating our obedience by promises. I long for an anxiety-free life. Turn from anxiety and pray. Why? Because Jesus said, I'll know peace. Promises are part of what He's purchased for us. They're part of the power. So that's why I say, even though something like the command to not commit homosexuality looks 
our fulfilling that, our honoring God by, by portraying his relationship with the church, the distinction between men and women, head and helper, by maintaining that even within the broader society, ever keeping those distinctions for the sake of his name, not leveling out men and women as if they are the same. They're not the same. And there's a greater purpose at stake in order to put on display the greatness of God and his love for his people. To ever maintain that there is that distinction between Christ and his church. And we're just giving a picture to the world as we do that. But the call to not commit homosexuality in the Old Testament, it looks almost the same as it does in the New Covenant and yet, and, and so we can benefit from that law. But what I'm saying is that even as the light comes through Christ, it gets more focused. Even though the line appears straight, when it comes out through the lens of Christ on this side, in the new covenant side, it, it's more focused because now we have a new pattern and we have new power. But then there's other laws that when they come through Christ, all of these laws, remember, they just express the character of God. An unchanging character, but it can be manifest in different ways at different times. And so we can appropriate Old Testament law, but we have to consider how does Jesus, in light of his coming, how does he transform things? And I don't know how else to do it except by taking each law on its own and asking the tough questions of what do we know from the New Testament perspective about how things have been transformed when I'm considering does this law apply to me or not? Leviticus 19.28, the tattoo law. It's only mentioned one time in the Old Testament. Don't tattoo yourselves for the sake of the dead. Well, what do I do with that law? Well, the first thing I do is I don't simply say, it says, don't have tattoos there, therefore you can't have a tattoo today. No, that's Old, Test Old Covenant law. I have to consider how is it written for my instruction when it wasn't written to me, and the only way I can do it is send it through the lens of Christ and consider how might he transform this law. Does it reach me in the same way that it was reaching them? Notice how Paul and Peter don't hesitate. They don't hesitate teaching as New Covenant believers and appropriating Old Testament law and applying it directly to the church. We have to understand how can I do this faithfully. Paul says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? I'm not speaking on my own authority. I'm going to let God's Christian scripture speak to you. And he cites, I think it's Deuteronomy 21. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God was concerned? See, he draws on an Old Testament law and he applies it in a fresh way to Christians. Ephesians 6, children obey your parents and the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and your mother. And then he says, this is the first commandment with a promise. 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So he has in 1 Corinthians 1 what may be called a civil law. And here he has what others have called a moral law. And he's just appropriating both of them. But intriguingly, children obey your parents comes right after husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands. And all of this unit, children to parents, wives to husbands, slaves to masters, flows out of an imperative in Ephesians chapter 5. Here's what Paul says. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the Spirit of Christ in the book of Ephesians. The command is, be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes, comma, and he has a list of participles. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. All of those give clarity to the command, be filled with the Spirit. And the last one is submitting one to another. And then you have a period. And then Paul says in the very next verse, wives to your husbands. In in our Bibles, it adds a verb, submit to your husbands. But there's no verb in the Greek text. It's just wives to your husbands. Suggesting that this verse, this entire discussion of how wives relate to husbands, husbands relate to wives, children relate to parents, masters or uh, servants relate to masters. All of it is, is a case study in what it means submitting one to another. Submitting one to another. Wives to your husbands. What it means is that marriage is only going to work wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their parents, dads not Exas, what is the word? Uh, that word. Um, their children, servants honoring their masters. It's only going to happen if you're filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting one to another. And it's the Spirit of Christ. So even here, when he cites the Old Testament, the old, the uh, Ten Commandments. And he applies it to the church. Even within context, he's doing so only in light of the Spirit of Christ. That's that's my point. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. And that's the context wherein children will be able to obey their parents rightly. It's the only context that it can happen. Obedience is a fruit of the Spirit. Here's Peter. But as he who called you is holy, I want you to be holy in all of your conduct. Why? He says the reason Christians need to be holy is because it is written in the law, in Leviticus. Be holy as I am holy. Peter doesn't have a problem. Paul doesn't have a problem using Old Testament law and applying it to Christians. But they only do so in light of the pattern and, even more importantly, the power that Christ has secured. And they're reading it through the fulfillment that he has wrought. 
So how do we appropriate it? What are we thinking? What are the categories that we're thinking about? The Old Testament law portrays the character of God, anticipates Christ, and clarifies the makeup of love and wise living. Remember, it's not our law. We don't obey it simply because it said it. Simply because, because it wasn't written to us. It's not our covenant. And yet Jesus says all of it matters. But we're following Jesus. We're following the apostles. The Great Commission is teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. He's the main lens, and it's the apostles and the prophets that provide the foundation for the church. They are the basis. In Acts chapter 2, when all the early church was gathered together right after Pentecost, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what we need to be. We need to be Christians who devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. But then when we do so, we recognize that the Bible they're preaching from is the Old Testament. That's the Bible they had. And so all of a sudden, we come to the Old Testament, but only through the apostles who are working in light of Christ and only through Jesus' fulfillment. So we can't just go to the Old Testament and say, do this because. We always have to assess and wrestle What would this mean in light of the work of Christ? One of the benefits of Old Testament law is that it expresses the character of God. Remember this verse. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, my covenant, then you will be a holy nation. How is that so? What what does that holiness element have to do with the keeping of the law. Well, it's because the law itself is a manifestation of God's character, and he is holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, what does it look like for me to be holy? It looks like being holy in your conduct, heeding the word of the Lord. You shall remember and do all my commandments with the result that you will be holy to your God. The commandments are an expression of God's holiness. And so you and I, one of the benefits, one of the ways that the Old Testament laws can instruct us is simply by saying, what does this tell us about God's character? And God's character never changes. So even though it's not our law, it can teach us about our God. The law is holy, Paul says. He's talking, I believe, about the Mosaic law. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When you go back to Deuteronomy 8, I think that's what's standing behind Paul's comments. He says the law is holy. And so to engage the law we can encounter the living God. We can learn about the character of God. And that's worth engaging in. The law also anticipates Christ. Here's what I'm talking about. The king who sat on the throne was to be a man of the law. And the portrait of the king in Deuteronomy 17 anticipates ultimately the role of Christ as the perfect king and law keeper. 
When the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all, his, all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So reading from the book will generate fear, which will generate obedience. If you're struggling with obedience, then the answer is, You need to fear God more, and fear of God grows out of an encounter with his book. That's the pattern that we're seeing here. He shall read from it and learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. So the fear of God will create humility. The king was not to replace Yahweh, he was to represent Yahweh. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. What I'm saying is that as we read the law, it not only portrays the character of our God, it identifies the character of our Christ, who is the perfect king who perfectly kept the law. So we can meet Jesus in every law that we're reading, celebrating his perfect righteousness in light of our own imperfect righteousness. As you're reading the law, one of the ways that you can read it for your own benefit is not only to celebrate the character of God, but to celebrate who Jesus has been for you as the perfect law keeper. Your devotions, in this sense, you're not reading the Bible to say, what am I supposed to do? You're reading the Bible to say, who is Jesus? And every single law, every ideal in the Old Testament, is embodied in the person of Christ. And all of a sudden, the law becomes eternally relevant for us because in the law, we see an eternal portrayal of Christ. We become increasingly edified in who he has been for us. When we were weak, he was strong. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied, Isaiah 53, by his knowledge shall the righteous one. Notice what he's called. The servant is called the righteous one. That means he does what's right. He's the righteous one and he will make, through his substitutionary death, many to be accounted righteous. Though they weren't. No, they were filled with iniquities. That's what it says. He shall bear their iniquities. Our sins on him, he counts us as righteous. But he was the righteous one. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God would be unjust not to forgive us our sins. In light of what Christ has done. I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if any of you does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 1 John 1, 9 through 2, 2. He is the righteous one, the perfect one who does what is right. The law can help us. Every single one of the 613 commandments can point us to glory in, to praise Jesus increasingly. Because every single one of them point to him. 
As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, obedience, many were made righteous. And the ultimate obedience is that he went to the cross. Now this text, different Christians read it different ways. I can make my case, but here's how I'm reading it. For God has done through Jesus what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The walking according to the Spirit is the evidence that we've been changed. But what the cross event does is not only take away our condemnation, it secures for us the perfect righteousness that God demanded in the law. That's how I'm reading this text. That in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is Jesus' perfect righteousness being applied in our stead. That's how I'm understanding that to be, to, to mean. That the righteous requirement that the law demanded could be fulfilled by him in us. It's applied to us. His perfect righteousness becomes ours. And the evidence that we're changed is that we walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death. He became obedient all the way to the point of death, death on the cross. That's where his obedience took him. But he was perfectly obedient. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Every one of the laws points to Jesus' perfections. So as you, read your, as you do your devotions in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, this might be a reorientation. One of the ways you can go to the Old Testament is not simply to say, How am I supposed to live out the law? What I'm saying here is one of the ways that applies to us is that we say, wow, what a great Savior, what a great Christ we have who lived all of this on my behalf perfectly so that I could have life in him. And that's part of the way that we're supposed to appropriate it, that we're supposed to teach it. But now we come to this section. And this is where we move beyond just the character of God and the, the character of Christ to us actually obeying the law in light of Jesus' fulfillment, even though it wasn't written to us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, Deuteronomy 6.5. And the second is like it, Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. So the way I'm reading that is that the law and the prophets, everything that's flowing out of them is grounded in love. Hear this. Love is what Israel was supposed to do. All the other commandments simply told them how to do it. Love is what Israel was supposed to do. All the other commandments simply told them how to do it. I think that's how Jesus 
and Paul are reading the Old Testament. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You can summarize it all in the context of love. Love for God, love of neighbor. And at times, both Jesus here and Paul in a text like Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I say, well, what about love for God? How can you say the whole law is boiled down into love of neighbor? Where's love for God? And I think the answer is simply that love for neighbor consistently throughout the Old Testament is the proof that you love God. You can't say, I love God, and yet hurt your wife or your children. Turn away from the broken. In those moments, love for God is not operative. Because where's God going? To walk in God's ways means that we will follow him in his non-prejudicial love for the least. So the text is saying love is the essence of all the law. And this is, for me, this is very helpful in trying to discern how do I appropriate the Old Testament law that was not written to me but is written for me. Well, one of the ways I do it is I look at that law and I boil it down to a love principle. Because Paul is saying, Jesus is saying, it's all about love. Every single law is an expression of love and action in some way. And when I think about how is this supposed to impact me long term, one of the ways that I can assess that is by examining what is the principle of love that stands behind this law that would have lasting value to me, even the side of the cross. Because all the law is fulfilled in the call to love neighbor. Owe nothing to anyone except this, to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We fulfill the law in light of Christ's law fulfillment. We're walking, when we're walking in love, we're actually doing what all the law was pointing to. Now notice what Paul says. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And then he says, and any other commandment is summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. He doesn't say, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet, or any other moral commandment. He says, any other commandment, any one. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. That's about love of neighbor. Really? Yes. Don't eat pork. It's about love of neighbor. Offer the burnt offering this way is about love of neighbor. The question is, what does it look like? But I think that's what he's saying. All of it can be summarized as this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So as I go back, what I'm seeing in the Old Testament laws is not simply the character of God, the embodiment of love, a pointer to Jesus. I'm also getting a a framework for how wide and how high and deep 
love is supposed to be. It just gives 613 examples, but it was always supposed to be case law, meaning that even Moses didn't expect that all the specific details of all of life were going to be covered in his law. That's why they needed priests and judges to be able to, you bring your case to them and you, and you say, I don't find it in your words, Moses. And they would have to look at those cases as Moses laid them out and say, well, let me establish a principle and now apply it into this new context. We do that today with our laws. And that's how the Mosaic law was operative. We're, what I'm saying is that we can do the same thing, but we always have to account for Jesus and how he has transformed or changed or altered. What does it mean that he fulfilled the law? But it's all about love. So here's a summary, and I take this summary from... Uh, actually... I didn't take the summary from anybody. This is me. So I'm going to, I'll quote somebody here in just a second. So the old covenant is no longer the direct and immediate guide or judge of the conduct of God's people. It's not the direct and immediate guide. We are new covenant saints, not old covenant saints. And so by that I mean is that if we're going to appropriate anything from the Old Testament, it has to be mediated. It doesn't come to us directly. It only comes to us in light of Christ. The Old Covenant is not directly related to us, but it's all for us. Nevertheless, we benefit from the law in a way that it portrays the character of God, anticipates Christ, and clarifies the nature of love and wise living. We get a pattern for wisdom. Some of you probably read one proverb a day because you think the Old Testament still matters for you. That you can gain guidance for parenting from the Old Testament wisdom book. I think that's legitimate. The Old Covenant law benefits us in the way that it points to the law of Christ. The law of Christ is different than the law of Moses. But the law of Moses anticipated the law of Christ. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, that's the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, Paul says. No, I'm not outside the law of God. But I'm under the law of Christ. I'm not under the law of Moses, I'm under the law of Christ in order that I might win those outside the law. So what I'm talking about is that when I see Moses say, in that day you will obey all that I commanded you today, I think he's understanding that there's lasting relevance for Deuteronomy. But he wouldn't have disagreed that it only comes to us through Jesus. We find fulfilled these texts in this, in this pattern. When Moses says, you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today, in that day of heart circumcision, that's what's going to happen to you. Or when Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, this is what Ezekiel was envisioning. That we would be a people who are living out the character of God in our lives. 
who are benefiting from all of the scriptures, who are living out a life of love by the power of the Spirit. So in this way, we gain clarity of what Paul means when he says all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. When he says that, I think, I think this is the kind of framework that he's drawing from. So in our remaining time, what we're going to do is just walk through a handful of case studies and consider how, how does this look like on the ground? How would I test this? And we'll start with some softballs, and then we'll move into some hardballs. Let me see if I have another slide here. Okay, here's the synthesis. It's taken from Brian Rosner's Paul and the Law, a brand new book that came out two years ago, I guess. He says, and I think he's right, and here's the tension that we have to face as Christians coming to the Old Testament law. Number one, when we read Paul, we read certain comments that suggest he repudiated the Mosaic law. We're not under that law. We are under the law of Christ. So he repudiates the Mosaic law. He sees the Mosaic law as replaced by the law of Christ. The law of Christ supersedes the Mosaic law. Moses is not our prophet. Jesus is our prophet. But then Paul is able to reappropriate the Mosaic law as prophecy that anticipates the gospel of Jesus and as wisdom intended to guide New Testament saints in our pursuit of God. And all of that is true. He can replace the law, he can repudiate the law, and yet he can reappropriate the law in light of what Christ has done. And we as Christians need to have a beefy enough framework to be able to try to read our Bibles that way. So I'm hoping that in the second half of our session this morning, we can gain some further clarity and practice practice looking at a handful of laws. All right? Let's take a break. 15 minutes, and we'll come back. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.